0: Listen to the word of God that comes to us from Luke, chapter 6. Jesus said, But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. May God bless the hearing and reading of His Holy Word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sons love and loved each other deeply, but that did not prevent them from trying to inflict great harm on each other at various times. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, I at one point I thought a wing of the emergency room might eventually be named after me uh, because we gave them so much duty. Sometimes it was just through their athletics, but most harm came from when they played each other. And they were pretty ferocious competitors on the athletic field, but I am almost convinced they did, never played harder than they did when they were playing against each other in the front yard. Uh, much blood was shed. I, I think I've told this story before, but there was one time when my older two were down in their in the man cave, the the uh, place we kept under quarantine in the house that kept them down there, and uh, um, they were both in high school. I'm not sure where they were in high school. They're two years apart. My older two, and. Um, you know, I, I heard some words. I heard some, you know, kind of yelling at each other, which is not was not uncommon. And then I heard a little scuffling, and I didn't intervene. If I had intervened every time I heard scuffling, I would have never gotten anything else done. But then it got a little more serious. And by the time I started moving down there, I heard words. Well, you know what words I heard. I heard yelling. I heard even kind of a pretty pretty shrill kind of shout, and I went down, and um, my second son, uh, who was actually bigger than his older brother, he was a football player, and he almost had tears in his eyes. And my oldest son both looked guilty and angry at the same time. But you can do that, right? You can be both guilty and angry at the same time. And I said, all right, what happened? And, uh, of course, they wouldn't tell me. Finally, I figured, I found out that they had been kind of going back and forth. And there was an unwritten rule. You could do anything to each other, but you didn't hit the other person in the face. I guess they were kind of vain about their looks. I don't know. But, that, you know, you didn't, you didn't hit the other person in the face. Well, they were going back and forth. My second son was winning, and his older brother, out of desperation, punched him in the face. And what was interesting, my second son, Adam, was more hurt in his feelings than any harm that his older brother had done to him. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm tired of this. I really am. I'm tired of it. You know, if you two want to fight, then do fight like real men. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, at times I've contributed to the toxic masculinity problem in our country, but I tend to only contain it within my own household. OK, I tried not to spread it. So, OK, in other words, you, know, you raise four sons. It's kind of one part fraternity house, one part marine barracks. Right. So anyway, I say, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you fooling around. I want you two to fight it out. And they looked at me like I was crazy. What do you mean? I, go, I want. I'm. I'm sitting here. You two obviously hate each other. You two are doing so much wrong to each other. So I want you to finally get it out of your system. I'm not leaving till I see blood. At this point, they looked at me like I was a crazy man. They go, What, what do you mean? I, I. You know, you two do this half fighting all the time. You call each other names. You treat each other. Obviously, you hate each other. So let's just get it out. Get it out of your system. Beat each other till one of you collapse. And Adam, who was the wronged one, said, well, I, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And my oldest son goes, Dad, that would be wrong. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I stood up. and said, so, all right, well, then figure it out without being whatever term I called them. All right. And As I walked up the stairs, my second one said to my oldest one, he got us again, didn't he? <laughs> well, <clears throat> the whole point is I knew they loved each other. Um, but, But sometimes even that is not enough to prevent us from hurting each other. But identifying people as enemies, I think is kind of a useful shorthand that evolution has given the human species. You know, the stranger is an unknown. It's easier to assume that they're dangerous and that they're a threat Right? Better safe than sorry. And I think that was maybe how it was. I mean, we are tribal creatures. I mean, we, <laughs> we, are, we are homo sapiens and we, we, were, we are social animals, all right? And from our earliest times, from whatever form we were in our earliest times, we gathered in tribes. It's very, very natural for us to be tribal. We still do it in different ways. But we're not merely social animals. Our ability to reason and to create stories to justify our actions allows us to do more with our enemies. It allows us to become bigots and racist. It allows us to not only see the other as a threat, but we have an opportunity to create stories about the other people. We have an opportunity to dehumanize them, to make them less than us. We're not only rational creatures, but we're spiritual creatures. So that enables us to throw envy into the mix. We not only make enemies of people who we perceive as threats, but people who we're envious of, people who have what we want, or people who we perceive got what should have been ours. They become our enemies. And our desire to dominate, to justify our own propensity to pride, helps us create enemies as well. And everyone else out there is doing the same thing. So we have this kind of cycle of enemies, and making enemies, and identifying enemies. So human prehistory and history has been extremely violent it continues to be that way. This country, for instance, was founded on great ideals of freedom from tyranny and freedom of the individual and our freedom to practice our religion as we feel convicted. It was also founded on the genocide of Native Americans and the violent subjugation through the African slave trade. The country would not exist if there hadn't been mass mor- murder and mass exploitation. It's just a point of fact. Now I'm talking here in kind of a grand meta way, talking about our prehistory and our national history. I could have easily have started in the middle school cafeteria, one of the most vicious places in the world. Right? <laughs> right? We all have memories from that, right? We do. Or the side conversations on the soccer field. Or what happens in the other cubicles at work or behind closed doors and boardrooms. Or in the parking lot after the PTA meeting. Or after the garden club meeting. Or sometimes even after the church meeting. Now there are some who actually blame religion for this whole cycle of violence. And there have even books been written that they not only Blame religion, but they blame monotheism. It was very popular the book that said the chief reason for violence in the world was the monotheistic religions. Well, Genghis Khan was not a monotheist, and and from a scale perspective of scale, what he did may have been the largest genocide in the history of humanity. Julius Caesar, he was not a monotheist this when he. Created when he practiced genocide against the Celtic and German tribes. Just because it sounds good in Latin when you have to read it doesn't make it any less a mass murderer. Julius Caesar was a mass murderer. Soviet Union. Not only killed millions of other people, but they killed their own people. That was not based on monotheism. The Nazi reign of terror. Not monotheistic. So, the point is, I think religion gets appropriated into this cycle of violence just like everything else does. Even the Bible. The Bible can be appropriated this way. And there is some of this tribal religion in the Bible, right? It is not Israel, the God of Israel. Yahweh is the God of the nation of Israel. And there are passages that treat the enemies of Israel like they're the enemies of God. But I would argue there's a counter-narrative throughout the whole scriptures. I think it begins with Cain and Abel. The fourth chapter of the book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, shows us that the heart of all killing is a brother killing a brother. whether it be an individual act of violence or whether it be a national act of violence, when you kill, you're actually killing a brother or a sister. Jacob and Esau. We see the, the destruction that envy can do. And our Hebrew scripture lesson today, the Joseph cycle. Isn't the Joseph cycle, it's awful. We're we, you know, we here in Sunday school, and we teach it to our kids because, you know, Joseph has the coat of many colors, right? <laughs> we make a nice Broadway musical about it. <laughs> but it's a horrible story. Joseph's kind of a young, smart aleck, okay? The son of their father's favorite wife. That right there should give you that we're going to have a problem here, right? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Jacob has favorite wife, all right? And this is a kid who has a gift of dreaming. And in his dreams, he always turns out to be the hero. And his brothers aren't. But they do more than just rough him up. They want to kill him. Some do. And they end up selling him into slavery. That's a horrible, horrible thing. Brothers trying to kill another brother, brothers selling others into slavery. Without saying anything other than that, the Bible makes an early statement that slavery is one brother subjugating another brother. one of the great short story writers in American history is Ambrose Bierce. We don't maybe talk about him as much now as we did in an earlier stage, but he fought the Civil War. Um, interesting character, an adventurer kind of guy. He even dies mysteriously. He disappears hanging out with Villa. All right, so, you know, anyway, he's an interesting guy. Well, he wrote a story called The Horseman in the Sky. And the story is about civil wars, taking place during the civil war. There is a, I don't remember if he's a private or whatever, but he's on guard duty, he falls asleep, wakes up, he's not caught. And he is a Virginian who's fighting for the north. And on his sentry duty, he sees that there is a Confederate officer on a cliff spying on the Union lines. So he takes aim. He shoots the horse, knowing that the horse will fall off the cliff, and both the rider and the horse are killed. And it almost has this apocalyptic, reverse apocalyptic on purpose. You have a horseman falling out of the sky in the midst of the war that was brother against brother. Well, the punchline is, as he reports to his commanding officer, The Confederate spy, the officer that he shot, was his father. And I think what Beerus is going to the heart of what war is war is not only a war against brother against brother, right? That was kind of the common way that the Civil War was described. It was literally true, you know, in thousands of cases. There were brothers fighting against brothers, and there were Fathers fighting against sons and vice versa. But at the heart of any time you wage war, there is a war against the father. The killing of the father is almost always symbolic of waging war with God. When we fight against one another... Maybe, in essence, what we are doing is we're fighting against God. And by killing God, it probably makes it easier to kill one another, right? A lot of people get Nietzsche wrong. When Nietzsche cries out about the death of God, he's not celebrating it. Now, he believes it, but he's not celebrating the death of God because he feels like the modern world is not going to handle it, and the 20th and 21st century has proved him right. Not only are we destroying each other, but we're destroying the very place we live, the planet. God consistently presents God's self as an inconvenient truth. And maybe that's what got Jesus lynched, right? <laughs> he said things that people didn't want to hear. But Jesus has a tendency not to stay dead, Right? And he speaks to us today in the Gospel of Luke. And this is a continuation on Luke's version of the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain. And so he says, love, don't hate. Bless, don't curse. Don't judge. Be merciful. Well, I guess my question to you is, who loves everyone? Who blesses? Who shows mercy? Who in the end may not judge, at least not judge the way you and I would judge? Who is the model for what Jesus is calling us to do here? God. If God through Christ is commanding us to love our enemies, once you start loving an enemy, what happens? Hard to keep him as an enemy, right? <laughs> In other words, all right? Sometimes it's hard enough to love our friends, right? <laughs> love the people around. But Jesus is saying you got to love your enemies. You need to bless, not curse. You need to be merciful as God is merciful. In other words, the hidden history of the world that we as Christians believe is that the human race has been wrong from the beginning. The stranger is not our enemy. Demonizing or making the other be inferior or hating whole groups just because they're different creating threats where there are none. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That's not what God wants us to do. It may be the natural order, but we're called to a different order. I'm in the process of listening to Colin White, uh, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. They won the Pulitzer Prize In 2017, Um, I don't listen to a lot of books, but I've been trying to. I do a lot of running around, so I've been trying to redeem the time. And it's a devastating book to listen to. I don't, I don't know if it'd be worse to read it or not. I'm, I'm not sure. It's an amazing book, but it's not for the faint of heart. And in this book, it's, it's, it's history and fantasy at the same time. It's historical fiction, but there's a fantasy element to it. The Underground Railroad is an actual Underground Railroad. And each chapter stops at a different state. And what happens to, uh, initially there are three runaway slaves. I won't spoil the book, but the one runaway slave is a central character. And Cora stops at each state. And uh, Whitehead has created at each stop, a picture of a particular time of race relations in America. And each state and each story is equally horrifying in a variety of ways. When Cora and her two companions escaped, they were, had been running for a couple of days and they accidentally come upon a group of hunters. And anytime there was an escaped slave, it talked about the idea that everyone, it became almost sport to try to capture them. And so this group of hunters jump upon the runaway s- slaves. And there's a teenager, Cora is a teenager, and there's a teenage boy that grabs a hold of Cora. And in the struggle, she endul- ends up mortally wounding the young boy. So eventually they're wanted not only <clears throat> because they're escaped slaves, but now they're murderers. And these are the worst nightmare of the of southern slave owner. A slave who actually fights back. So they're very, they're hunted in extreme ways. And during this whole course of her journey, you know, you, you get the inner life of Cora. And she tries to make sense of what this world is like. Some very profound statements. And initially, she sees the boy who attacked her as an enemy. Just another white man grabbing her, as she says. Later on in the book, she's kind of making sense of what is hers to own and what is not hers to own. In other words, where am I responsible? Who have I wronged? In other words, she goes not only from feeling the incredible burden of all the ways she has been wronged. And trust me, she's been wronged so many different ways. But as she begins to grow as a, as, a, as a person, she begins to own what she's done wrong too. And so there's a point in the novel where the boy who she ended up killing in the struggle becomes a neutral thing, not an enemy, a neutral. He's, he's just part of the story. But there's a point towards the end of the novel where she begins to understand this boy as another victim of what slavery and hate does to people. She was a victim of slavery. Her friends were victims of the, of the death and savagery of oppression. But this young boy who had tried to catch her, who had dehumanized her, who had seen her as less than a human being, She comes to see that he was a victim as well. See, when you hate, you kill. Not only do you kill the other person in your mind, but a part of your soul has to die. Grace and hate don't exist side by side. Wherever hate lives, God can't be there in that part. Correa goes on to say this. The world may be mean, but people don't have to be. Not if they refuse. Jesus goes a step further. The world is mean, but God is not. If you belong to our God, then love is your calling. Blood is thicker than water, but what if love decides to bleed? Then love is thicker than blood. Enemy and lover, judge and damned, may yet live beneath the crimson flood. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.